Once again, good morning. A blessed Chinese New Year to you. I hope you had a good time celebrating it with your family and friends. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer as we commit the sermon to the Lord. Lord, we want to commit this time into your hands. Hide your preacher behind the cross. Read the blood of Christ over myself and my family and loved ones. And all of us here as well. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to be the revealer of all truth. Help us, more importantly, not just to be hearers of your word, but be doers of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of my favorite uh, movies of all time is The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, for those of you who may not know, allow me just to give a quick summary of the plot. Essentially, it's a small and weak hobbit by the name of Frodo, so-called was chosen by Gandalf, the wizard, to be the ring bearer. Now, Frodo is accompanied on his journey to destroy the evil ring by his good hobbit friend Sam, as well as Merry and Pippin. Along the way, many other people join in, uh, chiefly Aragorn, the warrior king, Gimli, the dwarf, Legolas, the elf, whom all the ladies admire the most. And now this team had uh, many battles you know, to fight, many challenges to overcome, and Frodo was admittedly the weakest of all of them. He had no magic, like Gandalf the wizard. Neither did he have any of the warrior skills, you know, of Aragorn, Gimli, or Legolas. And, and yet, amazingly, he alone was chosen to be the ring bearer, to destroy this evil ring. Now, one reason I like the trilogy is because we can all see a little of ourselves in Frodo. He isn't the tallest or the fittest of the characters. There were so many other worthy ring bearers, but yet Frodo was chosen. And this reminds me of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-27, to where Apostle Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So called chosen when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The other reason I like this movie is because it shows us how much we really need each other to fulfill God's given assignment. Quite clearly, Frodo, being unskilled, frail and weak, could never have completed this assignment on his own. He needed the support of all his friends, even those who could not wield a sword. He needed them. In the same way, we need each other to fulfill our God-given assignments. You see, those of us who call ourselves Christians are also called to carry not the ring, but the cross. We are all called by Christ to carry the cross, and as well as the cross, uh, the cross of suffering and the cross of servanthood. Remember Pastor Derek's sermon last week? He said, not only some can serve, but all can serve. Really, if we call ourselves Christians, we don't have a choice. We need to bear our cross, prepare to suffer for Christ, and to serve like our Lord Jesus did. But we cannot bear this cross all by ourselves. We need one another to help carry this cross. Even Jesus, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, God Himself needed an ordinary human being called Simon of Cyrene to help Him carry the cross. And this account is found in all three Gospels, the first three Gospels, to show us how important it is to teach us the lesson that even Jesus needed someone to help carry the cross. If that's the case, how much more do we need each other to help carry our crosses? Now, just a small point here. 
In case some of you wonder whether the Bible is reliable, here we have the name Simon of Cyrene. And if you are living in the first century, and if this name is there, written there in the gospel, and is spreading around, if, if this account was false, you could have easily stood up and said, hey, that's not true. There's no such person, Simon of Cyrene. But because of names like this written in the uh, first person accounts, we know therefore that the Gospels are reliable. This is a very side point here. But things like that tell us that the Gospel is reliable because they are first person witnesses okay, in the Bible. Now come back to the point about us serving. Recognizing that we all have to serve, but we need each other's help to carry this cross of servanthood. Recently, I heard on radio an advert by OCBC Bank, which promotes their Pay Anyone service. I'm not doing publicity for them, so, but I heard on radio, and they came out with a series of jokes. So I decided to come up with a similar joke of my own. Uh, folks at AM didn't catch it at all. Hopefully, we can get some response here. Anyone, someone, and everyone were all invited by their pastor to serve in their local church ministries. But in the end, nothing was done. Why? Because no one decided to serve instead. Okay, same. Okay, my point is, if we see ourselves as a spiritual family, we must all play our parts. Cannot just say, 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 here, 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 but nothing is done. Just as Frodo needed everyone, everyone needed Frodo. It's teamwork. Everyone has a part to play. And here I want to address two common fallacies or misconceptions. First of all, some of us think, oh, there are so many people serving already. I don't need to serve. The church doesn't need me. Well, the truth cannot be farther away. If, imagine, you know, in the story of the Lord of the Rings, if Legolas or, or, or Aragorn thought to themselves, ah, lama, don't need la. Frodo already has great, great wizard Gandalf. I don't need to join the team. Imagine if they had thought that way. What would happen? The mission would have failed, right? In the same way, if you know the reality of our church, if you observe carefully, if you take time to observe carefully, either by reading the bulletin or meeting the ushers and stuff like that, if you observe carefully, if you know the inside story, it's really the same people who keep on serving. The same people at the AV console, the same accounting stewards, the same ushers, the same tutors, the same Sunday school teachers, so and so forth. Although I don't really have the exact math, but I believe every year we induct in less than 20 new faces across all our ministries. We bring in less than 20 new faces across all our ministries. And if we just do a little bit of math here, 20 new faces divided by 1,200 in our membership, that's 1.67%, lower than the current fixed deposit rate. That's bad, if you ask me. This is a bad number for our church. By the way, I think 20 new faces, if you ask me, I'm being generous. We probably have less than that, fewer than that. So the truth is, we do need everyone. We need you. Christ needs you to serve. Many hands will make light work. Now, let me address the second fallacy, which some of us think, I cannot serve God because of my sin. God cannot use me because of my sin. I'm unworthy to be used by God. At first glance, this seems very legitimate. A holy God uses a holy vessel, and since I'm unholy, therefore I cannot be used by God, therefore I shouldn't serve. But if we examine this premise more closely, we will realize it actually goes against the grain of Scripture. Now, in the kingdom of God, we don't have to be perfect in order to be saved, right? 
when you became Christians for the first time, were you perfect? No, we were all sinners and yet God received us as His children because of what Jesus has done. So we were saved, not because we were perfect, but we are saved in order to be perfected. So why then do we change this principle and turn it around when it comes to the area of service? In the same way, in the kingdom of God, we don't have to be perfect in order to start serving. No, we start serving in order to be perfected. If we all need to be perfect in order to serve God, then really no one is qualified at all, including me. No one will be qualified if we need to be perfect to start serving. Of course, we mustn't be naive. The brother who is tempted easily by money should never be made an accounting steward. But why can't that person serve as a musician? Likewise, the sister who desires fame and limelight may not be suitable to serve as a musician. But why can't that person be an accounting steward? You see, almost every Christian that I know who is spiritually mature learned Christian maturity through service. This is very important to bear in mind. Service is one way, one key way in which God develops our Christian maturity. It's often in our service to God that we learn to confront our inadequacies and we learn to depend on God. When we ask God to a place that we say, God, I cannot do it. I need you to help me to serve. Whether it's a schedule issue or ability issue, when we start serving, we recognize, hey, God does make a way. That's where we learn depend on God, we grow in Christian maturity. And it's often through service that we develop the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Take one example, accounting stewards. Many of us, after the service, we go home, we go marketing, we have lunch and stuff like that. But not them. They stay back quietly behind the scenes. They spend time counting the money, probably an hour or so before they go back. What kind of fruit do they grow? Patience. Right? The fruit of the patience. So it's true service that we often develop the fruit of the Spirit. So if you see yourself as sinful, so-called unworthy to serve God, actually you are in a good position because you can be used by God and God wants to grow you, to mature you. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So don't let your sin stop you from serving. That's the lie from the devil. Instead, start serving, even in a small way. Start relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in God, and you will begin to grow in your Christian maturity. Indeed, there are many things that we can do as a church to serve, to meet the needs of various peoples, both inside and outside of the church. But I'm only one person. I cannot do so much. I cannot possibly shepherd every one of you personally, although I wish I can do that. Neither can I be teaching at every meeting. And that's why I thank God for all the cell leaders who helped with the task of shepherding. We dedicated them earlier. I thank God for people who teach in the discipleship and nurture causes. They help us to grow in our Bible knowledge in prayer. However, there's still a lot more that we can do for the kingdom of God. And that's why Christ needs you. We need you as a church. As Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. And can I add this? The needs and the cries of the people are endless. That's why Jesus said, pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest field. You know what? You are the answer to Jesus' prayers. The task of world evangelism and world discipleship is so large that no one church, 
No one person can accomplish this alone. As someone has said, it takes the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. And Christ needs every believer to be part of this mission. It takes the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. So all of us are called out by God for this purpose. That's why I said, actually, if we call ourselves Christians, we don't have a choice. We are all called by God for this global mission. But we have to begin somewhere, and we begin here for ourselves here in the Amokyo community and in Singapore. So where do we find ourselves in this huge assignment? As Methodists, as Amokyo Methodist Church, like John Wesley, I believe God has raised up the Methodists for a very special purpose, to spread scriptural holiness across the land. John Wesley truly believed this was the reason why God brought up the movement called Methodist, so that we can spread scriptural holiness across our land. And John Wesley witnessed this in his lifetime. England was spared the French Cultural Revolution, the French Revolution, because of what the work of the Methodists it really changed the texture of the entire land. Not just the spiritual texture, but the actual society's texture in his time. To spread scriptural holiness across the land. Secondly, the Methodists also have a very special belief that makes us unique. The doctrine of entire sanctification or Christian perfection. As Dr. Chamin Shun preached at the first of this sermon series, that's the unique gift that we bring to the body of Christ, truly believing that we can be perfected in love, not that we're sinless, but perfected in love for God and for our neighbour. But the Methodists also had a very special method to ensure that we don't just talk about being holy, but actually live holy lives, making a difference to ourselves and to the world. And John Wesley called this method class meeting. Now this is why we are called Methodists. Not because we have a lot of committee meetings, as many people think about Methodists, think about committee meetings. No, in its original sense, the method that John Wesley used to grow holy disciples was the class meeting. Now, before I explain a little about these class meetings, uh, the feedback, sorry, I want to go back to the journey God brought me on to prepare me for this role as PIC. Remember how God brought me to Israel so I could pray for David's anointing so that we can be a family after God's heart? Remember that, that story? Also, you may remember how God told me one night that I'm anointed for family, and if you are really part of our congregation long enough, you realize actually we do have quite a family atmosphere in our church. Now that's the, uh, the parts that I've mentioned before. Now here's the first part of the story. How God used the journey of my further studies to bring me back to the heart of Methodism, to recapture the passion and the methods of the early Methodists. Now back as early as January 2014, I wanted to study. I always wanted to improve myself, improve my Old Testament, my Hebrew. But when I prayed about it with my armor bearer at the time, the answer that God said to me that came back was, no, don't go. So at the time in my walk with God, I had learned to be content. Even when God says no, I'm happy to just trust God, that God knows better. So I, I just laid it aside. And sure enough, God had his reasons. In our track system, you know, our pastor's system here, we have to apply for study leave 18 months before we go and study. Right, 18 months. So if I applied in January 2014, I would have left for my studies in August 2015. Now, if that had been the case, my wife and I would really have struggled overseas because my daughter was born in December 2014. And so she would have only been seven months old if I had left for studies. Think again, the timeline. January 2014, I prayed about it. Should I go and study? God said, 
No. December 2014, my daughter was born. Who would know this would happen except God himself? Right? So by God's leading, he said no, uh, left it aside. But amazingly, the next year, January 2015, this topic was broached again by someone. I had no intentions to go to study since my daughter was just born. Just like I had no intention to go to Israel, but God brought me along anyway. So I had no intention to go. But somehow, that prompting never left. And so in obedience this time, I decided to apply. And by some supernatural work of God, no other track pastor applied. I probably, I'm probably the youngest track pastor to go for studies. Right? Uh, so amazingly, no other track pastor applied because we go by seniority EQ system. So those who are more senior who want to study always go first. So in the year that I applied, no one else applied. So God opened the doors. I left for my studies uh, 2016 August. Now, just to backtrack a few months from there, in March uh, 2016, I had received notice that I was accepted into three seminaries. One on the west coast of US, which gave me a $10,000 scholarship. A uh, second school was on the East Coast, a famous evangelical school for biblical studies, and that's my passion. I like to study uh, biblical studies. And the third was Candler School of Theology at Emory University, prompted by one of my ex-professors uh, from TDC. So all three schools accepted me, and I was thinking, oh no, how? What should I do? Where should I go? So one day during worship, I heard the Lord ask me this question. Why don't you go to where John Wesley went? Why don't you go to where John Wesley went? So, uh, John Wesley, essentially, he was from England, but he sailed across uh, the Pacific, right, to Atlantic? Atlantic, yes, Atlantic to Savannah, Georgia, the state of Georgia, the town of Savannah. So I knew my church history, at least that, that little bit, that he sailed to Georgia. So it was quite clear for me that the Lord wanted me to go to Avery University in Atlanta, Georgia. You see, going by logic, I would have chosen the first school. $10,000 scholarship, you know. I don't show the picture yet. Back, back, back. Don't spoil the surprise. Okay, long way more to the surprise. So going by logic, I should have chosen uh, the first school scholarship. It was the cheapest of the lot as well, in terms of accommodation and stuff like that. Going by passion, I should have chosen the second school. It's the best for my resume, if you ask me. A lot of famous pastors and preachers come from the evangelical biblical school. And this third option of Atlanta, Georgia, was the costliest of the three. The cost fees were the worst. Accommodations were the most expensive. It's a big city, and that's why it's, it's the worst. But I knew that the Lord had prompted. So I decided, okay, let's trust God again, and let's go for that. Interestingly, when I arrived in Georgia, I realized that 280 years ago, that was the time, the year that John Wesley also visited Savannah, Georgia to preach the gospel. So in my mind, 7 times 40 is 280. Divine plus divine times divine numbers. Very interesting how God brought me on this journey. Now, there are many other fascinating parts of this journey. First of all, God provided all the finances my family and I needed, primarily through Amokyo Methodist Church, many of you. So thank you very much for that. You are the answer to God's prayers. Second, God provided all the divine connections of, for the people, not just the finances, but of the people as well, to help me settle down. And this morning, I, turned, I found out that this divine connection actually attended our church service this morning. She flew in from Atlanta to visit her mom in Singapore. So because of this divine connection, my family and I were well settled in our new home by the end of two weeks. Those of you who ever had a chance to go and uh, stay overseas for a prolonged period, you know it doesn't take 
so soon to get settled down. But because we have this connection and many other people that God brought along divine connections, my family and I were well settled within two weeks. So that's really by the favour of God. The third fascinating part, this is where John Wesley comes in, but don't show the picture yet. Now, when I decided to go to Emory, I had plans to visit Savannah, Georgia, where John Wesley preached. I was thinking maybe I'll go to the church where he preached or see the statue that they put up for him there and stuff like that during my holidays, during my school holidays. That's what I thought before I flew over. Now, when I reached the school, on the first day of orientation, we were brought on a library tour. And in the library, there was a special collection section. And lo and behold, ta-da! Ta-da! The prayer desk and pulpit made for John Wesley himself. Wow! I thought I had to go and look for John Wesley. But John Wesley, so God, had been waiting for me. 280 years. I won't say only for me, but he had been waiting there. Now, that's not the end of the story. It culminates with this. And that's why I believe we need to recapture the heart and the method of the Methodist movement. Since I had chosen Emory uh, to study, I decided it would be best to study under one of the top professors who knew a lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls, top scholar. However, to my horror, after I arrived, I had already arrived, I discovered she was on a full year sabbatical. And I would totally miss all her classes. And so I was forced to reevaluate my classes, my options. And this when I chanced upon Dr. Kevin Watson and his class on the early Methodist methods, the class meeting. I have his picture on the slide. And because of his class, where we not, learned, not only learned about, you know, it's not just a lecture system, but we actually practice the class meeting. It really helped me to rediscover the practice of the class meeting and revive my Methodist roots. So you see, I went with the objective to improve my Hebrew, which I did. All the other modules I did on, on Hebrew. But God had other plans. He wanted to revive this part of me. So that we, I, I believe he wants me to steward this, to bring it back to us here in Singapore. Now the class meeting is somewhat similar to our cell groups, except there is one major difference. The emphasis in the class meeting is not on Bible study. It is also not on praying for the needs of one another. Although these are very legitimate, and very helpful, very needful, yet the emphasis are not on these two. Let me say here that Wesley expected the Methodists to read their own Bibles and have their own personal and family prayer times daily. This was expected of every Methodist. You are supposed to read your own Bibles and have to observe your own personal and family prayer times daily. That's required for every Methodist. And by doing that daily, once a week they will come to the class meeting to talk about what God had done for them in their walk with the Lord for the past week. So the class meeting then became the place where one's spirituality is revealed, shown. Let me give you an analogy here. You know, us men, we have to do our annual IPPT, right? The physical training done by the army, the tests. Imagine if someone only trained for the IPPT during the IPPT. Would that person pass? Of course not. Instead, 
we are expected to do our own personal training. And when the test comes around, whether we pass or not depends on whether we have been training on our own. That's what the class meeting is supposed to do. It just simply reveals whether we have been reading our own Bibles and making our own personal prayers. That's the purpose of the class meeting. It was the tool used to test one's personal spiritual growth. Are we really bearing the fruit of salvation? So whether one had been reading your Bibles privately and praying personally will all be reviewed during the class meeting. It sounds scary, but that's the way that John Wesley used to make sure that his people were really growing as disciples and not falling away. Now again, please don't misunderstand me. I fully believe in Bible study and prayer. I fully believe in it. And that's why we have our discipleship and nurture causes. Let me just do some publicity here. We have this book called By This Name. provides an overview of the Bible. Big picture of the Bible. Shorter course, just several weeks. And then we have a long term, uh, longer term, 30 over weeks course called the Disciple Program. I've been up on the slide as well, all the four books of the Disciple Program. I think you'll go in-depth into the Bible study. And then in the area of prayer, we have Companions in Christ. 32 weeks, I believe, or 28 weeks, sorry, of learning the various disciplines of prayer. Right, the various aspects of prayer. And then we have the Master Life Program, which talks about combining personal discipleship with some of these uh, elements as well. So these are the causes that we offer in the Discipleship and Nurture Causes. Registration is open from now to for the next four weeks. Uh, please do find out as much as you can. Talk to us and we'll be glad to direct you in the place, the book, perhaps you want to study or the area of prayer you want to grow in. Now these are the avenues for us to grow in Bible study and prayer. The cell group then, even though we are doing so-called this church-wide Bible study now, we are going to transit from the emphasis on Bible study which is about, about information to life stories, which is about transformation. Are we really living different, transformed, holy lives? So even if you, uh, those of you who have done the workbook or have begun, if you have not, you can always buy a book, uh, join a cell group, you get it for cheaper. But if you look at the questions in our workbook, you realize that these are really helping us to transit, begin to transit from information, talk about our personal lives, transformation. They relate, the questions in the workbook relate to how is our Christian life in God? How is our Christian life in God? And with that, I want to talk about that one key question that the class meeting revolves around. Every individual would share on one central question. That is, how is your soul prospering? How does your soul prosper? That's the old English that Wesley uh, used it may be better translated as how is your inner life or how are you growing spiritually as a Christian? How are you growing spiritually as a Christian? And even though the question is phrased as such, the emphasis is not so much on accountability, even though there's a very strong element of accountability because you come weekly to report on this question. But Wesley's emphasis in asking this question is really on giving testimony, giving glory to God, that His grace, His amazing grace, transforms our life. There is a very positive slant to this question, prospering. And don't misunderstand here, uh, Wesley wasn't talking about the prosperity gospel. It was not in his time and era. He did not believe in that as well. Wesley essentially took the grace of God very, very seriously. He truly believed that grace is greater than our sin. 
God's grace is so far greater than our sin. There is no excuse for any Christian to continue to live defeated Christian lives, caught in sin. That's not possible from Wesley's point of view because the grace of God is far greater than all our sin. And because John Wesley took the grace of God so seriously, he truly believed that every Christian, when they come to the class meeting, is the time that they bear testimony of how God's grace has enabled them to be a better Christian, to be growing in holiness. So one week, a person may come, please pray for me, I'm struggling with this area of my sin. But the next week, he may come with the testimony, you know what, God has delivered me from this sin. That's the kind of expectation when people came to the class meeting, to give testimony and glory to God for His amazing grace and power at work in our lives. And since uh, God has brought me on this journey to rediscover the class meeting, the more I meditated and reflected on this uh, Wesley's class meetings, the more I realized how thoroughly biblical John Wesley truly was. Some of us here may be familiar with this pastor called Francis Chan. Anyone heard of him? He's quite a famous guy. Uh, he famously left a thriving mega church. He left a, a thriving mega church in order to start small house churches because he believed that the church cannot be built around a single, you know, charismatic, magnetic personality. And he didn't want that the church to be built around his preaching. And so he left the mega church to start small house churches, empowering people, small groups of people to lead cell groups, so-called. And recently he wrote on how the church needs to repent and return to Christ's most basic commandments, which is to love God and to love one another. So when I read the article, uh, it's circulating on Facebook, at least the friends that I have circulated it, I was thinking to myself, hey, isn't that what John Wesley had been preaching and teaching all this while, to love God and to love our neighbor? In his sermon, who is a Methodist? Wesley says, a Methodist is one who loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And secondly, a Methodist is one who loves his neighbor as himself. And if that sounds familiar, it is because these are the great commandments that Jesus taught. And so for Wesley, he never thought of a Methodist being anything less than a, than a fully formed Christian. For John Wesley, a Methodist is a fully formed Christian who loves God completely and loves their neighbor completely. Second, John Wesley appointed class leaders because Wesley thoroughly understood it is not the pastor's job alone to disciple the flock. It is simply impossible, impossible for one of us to take care of a thousand people. So John Wesley understood that principle as well. Third, in true Wesleyan fashion and theology, Wesley understood that class members are not inferior to class leaders. And that's why Wesley believed that it is every member's duty to watch over one another in love. And I believe Wesley is absolutely correct. If we are all equal in the eyes of God, the clergy and the lay are equal, then the class leader and the class members are equal. And since we are all equal in the sense we have, all of us have the same duty and ability to disciple each other. Not only am I responsible for your spirituality, you are also responsible for my spirituality. All of us are called by Christ and therefore all of us have the same duty. And all of us have the same Holy Spirit in us, which gives us that same ability. 
Let me begin to close by referring to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, reading from the New International Version. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So the Thessalonians were already doing that. That's why he says at the end, just as in fact you are doing, but continue to do these things. That's the New International Version. Now let me give you the ALV, Anthony Lee's version. Therefore, keep encouraging and comforting one another. The Greek word here is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, parakaleo. You know how awesome this task is? We are called to do the same work as the Holy Spirit for one another. We are also given the ability, the encouragement to build up towards being one. That's the literal translation. To build each other up into one united spiritual house. How, if you ask me, how do we practice this verse? Be part of a class meeting. If you are already in an existing cell group or in the process of training zones and cell leaders to begin to shift this emphasis away from Bible study into talking about authentic lives, are they really growing spiritually in Christ? If you are not a part of a cell group, I encourage you to join a cell group. Take advantage of this church-wide series to join the cell group. If you ask me, getting everyone into a class meeting the way Wesley envisioned it is possibly the hardest role I've ever, hardest task I've ever embarked on in my life. I've done many difficult things, but I think this is probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest. I'm essentially seeking to transform the culture of all our cell groups. Years and years of culture. Any of you in leadership, you know transforming culture is the hardest thing to do. right? We have been so used to Bible study and prayer for each other, and let me say again, that's not wrong, but that's not the method this way. If Wesley is one of the pioneers of the cell group ministry, then we should model our cell groups in his way. Class meeting. Talking authentically about whether we are growing spiritually or not. You know, when I started this journey, when I first came back from Atlanta, the first semester I was on fire because I attended a course on class meeting. Second semester, I was spiritually dry. I was writing my thesis day and night, reading books day and night. I came back spiritually dry. But I knew that the Lord had given me this thing to steward, the class meeting. So I told the staff, Come, let's get together for this class meeting. And as a result of this class meeting, I confess to them first session, I'm spiritually dry as a pastor. But because they were PTMers, pastoral team members were on fire for God, their fire rubbed back on me and I became spiritually alive. So it's not just the pastor who is responsible for your spirituality. You guys can make a difference to my spirituality and to each other's spirituality as well. So Bible study and prayer are important, but like I said, that's not the Methodist way for us to grow as disciples of Christ. It's the class meeting. Wesley himself said, solitary religion is not to be found in Bible study and prayer. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. Can you be an adulterer and so-called be holy? Always living an adulterous life and consider yourself holy? Uh, let me have the slides. The quote by John Wesley. Of course, you cannot be an adulterer living in adultery, constant adultery, and still be considered holy. Obviously not, right? And so Wesley says, you cannot therefore consider yourself holy if you are always solitary, living 
a Christian life all by yourself. It's impossible. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social and a sense of community. We cannot live this Christian life on our own. No holiness but social holiness. In other words, we cannot grow in holiness without the faith community. We need each other. Some people talk, talk, they use this phrase, but they use it wrongly. They talk about doing works of social good, you know, to others, bless the poor and needy. But that's not the original intention of what John Wesley was saying. He's saying that we cannot grow in holiness by ourselves. We need one another to grow in true godliness and holiness. When we watch over one another in love, the class meeting is done rightly. We watch over one another in love. That's how we grow in true holiness. You know, at the end of the day, uh, come back to the Lord of the Rings story. Do you know why Frodo was chosen? Even though he was physically the weakest, the smallest, I believe he was chosen because of his pure heart. A fiery heart that desires to do what is right and needful. Physically, he's the weakest, but he had the purest heart. He knew what he had to do, and he did it. You see, at the end of the day, a cold heart will never be set aflame by more information. Bible study, no matter how important it is, will not set us aflame. Even prayer is like adding fuel. But a cold heart will never be set on flame by information and prayer alone. A cold heart can only be set aflame by others whose hearts are burning. You need fire to ignite another fire. You can add all the fuel you want. The Bible is the source of fuel, prayer is the source of fuel, but without the spark, that fire will never burn. And that's what we're supposed to do for each other as fellow Methodists. To set each other's hearts on fire for God. Are you excited? If we do this, we will begin to transform ourselves, begin to impact the lives of our, the colleagues, our family members. They will say, hey, you are different. You are different because your heart is on fire for God. That's why Wesley said, when we burn, people will come from mouths to just watch us burn because there is a fire in us that cannot be doused. That's what we're supposed to do, to set each other's hearts on fire for God. Let us pray. God, I thank you for this journey you have brought me on to recapture the passion and the method of the early Methodists. I know I would have never have done this on my own, but it is through you. And so God, I thank you. Now I want to ask you, Lord, to do that work. To set our hearts on fire for you, God. Do this for us, Lord. I know that's your heart's desire, Father. So, Lord, I ask you do this for us. Lord, I'm going to pray that, Lord, you shake us from our comfort zones. So we discover that actually there is a far greater life that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.